Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome. To Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, welcome to Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 10. Can't believe we're finally in double digits. In honour of that, we're doing something a little different today. Not different enough to give anyone the twitches, though, I promise. We have two stories for you as usual, but we also have an extract from Gail Z. Martin's upcoming novel, as well as an interview with the lady herself. So, sit back... Relax, make sure your favourite beverage is close to hand. Let's listen to some stories. To start us off today, we have a story called Neverland Blues by Adam Brown. Adam lives in Melbourne, Australia. This story originally appeared in 2008 in Dreaming Again, 35 new stories celebrating the wild side of Australian fiction. It won the 2009 Cronus Award for Best Short Fiction. His first novel has the longest title I've ever seen. It's Pyrotechnicon, being a true account of the further adventures of Cyrano de Bergerac among the states and empires of the stars by himself, deceased. Wow. You can find out more about Adam by clicking on the links on our F website. The story is read for you by James Silverstein, who is a budding author and role-playing game designer with credits from the Seventh Sea and Stargate RPG lines. James feels that there are always more amazing stories that need to be told, and he writes, narrates, and runs games to share them with the world. He loves speculative fiction, noir detective tales, and pulp fantasy, and we are lucky enough to have him as a returning reader for the District of Wonders. So, here we have it. Neverland Blues, by Adam Brown. Neverland Blues 
Michael Jackson bobs moth soft and white in the North African night sky. His many eyes tick and tick. Expensive lenses shiver into place, swiveling down. He takes in the view. Morocco, Tangier, the Casbah, so beautiful, and Aladdin's carpet a thousand meters below him. Wanting to see more, Michael Jackson twitches an aileron, but he's still clumsy in this body, and the movement is too emphatic. He spins, the city revolving under him, the souk, a distorted world, the old mosque glimpsed, then gone, the oriental quarter a flash of red and gold. Remaining calm, he gently corrects, then corrects again, slowing the spin, his training as a dancer serving him well here. And soon enough it settles down. The Ibn Battuta spaceport drifts into view, and he gazes at the exotic vessels on the launch apron, alien designs echoing the Moroccan architecture. Pale blue extraterrestrial prows and instrument bays like minarets and holy domes. His sensitive hull thrills with longing. He wants to be where those ships have been, visit their worlds, fly the clean spaces between the stars. He wants to swim the lavender vacuum of the Crab Nebula, hear the tolling of the bell moons that hang among the purple suns of the Great Bear. He wants to witness the black holes at the center of the galaxy. So massive, he's heard tell, that not only light, but also black cannot escape them. Blank holes fizzing invisibly at the white-hot core of the vast all-thing. But he can't. Not yet. Space is lonely, almost definitively so. He needs a friend for the journey, a passenger. Someone like him, a bright-eyed innocent with no reason to miss the world. In recent weeks, he believes he's found just the boy. Michael Jackson has been busy since then. He's been putting steps in place, measures, ways, and means. Various of his proxies, some human, others not, have weaved a web of bribes and other inducements to steer the boy closer. And tonight is the night when it all comes together or falls apart. Now on cue, a subroutine pings an alert. The boy is on the move. Michael Jackson brings his focus down, lenses converging on the city, a fuzz of pixels clearing, high-gain cameras finding the boy in the Medina, tracking him. Files pile up. There, the boy's characteristic skin tones glancing from the shiny bowl of a hookah. There, the boy negotiating with another urchin, a dance of sharp, quick hand movements. And there again, his crow-colored hair, his follicular scalp pattern visible between awnings as he hurries along an alley older than the Christian religion. Michael Jackson tenses. The boy is approaching the tea house. He pauses at the entrance. The wait lasts four seconds, an agony for Michael Jackson. The boy enters. If he had a mouth with which to do so, Michael Jackson would have smiled with relief. Salim, who has a keen sense for such things, knows he's being watched. A gendarme? He thinks not. Another thief, more likely, aiming to steal what Salim has already stolen. Or perhaps one of Uncle Baba's boys. Or worse, the uncle himself. He picks up his pace, doing what he has always done to avoid observation, strategies he took in with his mother's milk. He pauses, alters his gait, flits into a crowd, out again deftly navigating the secret trails and interning alleys of the souk, 
through strawberry clouds of shisha tobacco, past stalls and pickpockets and tourists. He glances back several times, hoping to catch out his pursuer, but because he does not think to look into the sky for the beautiful machine that was once the American pop star Michael Jackson, he sees nothing suspicious. Reaching the tea house, Salim scans the street once more. Again, nothing. An old Volkswagen petite taxi, engine compartment sparking, a Nigerian woman drifting along with a bright bundle on her head, her body long and thin and swaying like somebody's shadow at sunset. Salim turns and enters. Yellow tiled walls, cool marble floors, ceiling fans whooping. The music generator is set on Arabic pop. Slow yodels, ululations, lovelorn warbles. Salim smells coffee and lemon juice and frying lamb. His stomach aches with yearning. He reads the room with a glance. Aliens here and there, monsters and monstresses sitting at tables, a squad of fever dreams lounging by the bar. Salim is unsurprised to see them. Tangier has always been a haven for outlanders. Descended from nomads, Moroccans have a proud tradition of extending lavish hospitality to travelers. He walks further in, passing a table of sentience from the large, pathetic galaxy, then a thing sitting alone as hideously beautiful as a deep-sea nudibranch, sipping mint tea with a damp slithe of mouth parts, then another thing like a cross between a gibbon and a flea, poised on a stool, primed, waiting. He skirts a group of humans, Berbers and Jalabas and dusty black headscarves, the clack of dominoes, the resinous stink of kif. One of the men looks at Salim, at the boy's soft hair and liquid eyes, and mutters to the others. They laugh as Salim walks by. Salim's broker sits at a table at the rear. It is a creature from Q1 Eridani. Nameless, a bull male. It is one of a race of beings who are, as a species, an artwork created by a member of a still older race of beings. It has been said that it is the nature of art to be useless. But this is not so. For to be successful, a piece of art must perform the useful functions of generating admiration or money. Salim's broker demonstrates the latter function well. Seeing Salim, the creature fans its crest, black lacquer and old leather, bony hinges as daintily evil as a bat's wing bones. The body swells green-pink and blue-black, shifting on its plinth. From deep in its chest comes an interrogative thunk. In response. Salim produces a small package. The broker takes it and unwraps it with a knuckleless prosthesis the color of lead. Within is a new Victrinox, Swiss army knife, stolen at great risk earlier that day. Eyeless, the broker regards Salim. Look, Salim says, taking back the Swiss army knife. The boy's small fingers pull out the implements. The little scissors, the nail clippers, the cigar trimmers, the can opener, the laser pointer. Then, look, see, one of the attachments is another Swiss army knife. Demonstrating, he unfolds the second Swiss army knife. It is half the size, but otherwise identical to the first. And here, here is another. With a dirty fingernail, he pries a third Swiss army knife from the second. It is a quarter the size of the first. This is as far as I can get without tools, he says. I used watchmaker's gear. Microscopic pinchers I stole a while back. In Salim's language, a street patois of French, Moroccan Arabic, and American English, the verb to steal carries no disgrace. 
that rather connotes an almost socialist scorn of private property. Property is theft, and the implication, therefore, is that theft is property. I got down to 37 Swiss army knives with no sign of stopping, he says. Perhaps it goes all the way down to nothing. Perhaps smaller. The broker takes back the infinite Swiss army knife. It regards it for a moment. Selim waits. Then the broker thunks in the affirmative. Selim holds out his hand for payment. He smiles to himself. He needs thirty dirhams to pay Uncle Baba. But the knife is worth far more. He will have plenty left over for food, perhaps even shoes. Instead of money, the broker gives him a flat tube of dark, heavy-duty cardboard. Salim stares at the tube, unbelieving. What is this? he says. I cannot use this. He tries to hand it back. The broker thunks, dully, refusing to take it. No, I do not want this, Salim says. Money! Durham's! I need money! But the broker is shutting down, fans and veins and bony loops folding away. I need money, Salim says again, raising his voice, though he knows it's useless. The broker is gone, retreated into itself. May as well argue with fate. Salim turns away. His stomach aches. He does not know what to do. He says a word he heard a man say once, the filthiest word he knows. Then he pockets the tube and makes for the door. On the way he passes a creature with a long intestinal body and a head studded with damp black snout pits and a smattering of yellow concave eyes receptive not to light but to misfortune. Seeing Selim, the creature flinches and squints as if shocked by a flash of lightning. A thousand meters overhead, lenses track the boy leaving the tea house. Servos whine, telephotos loom, optics switch to infrared, showing Michael Jackson the tube in one of the boy's pockets. So the broker has fulfilled its part of the plan. But Michael Jackson does not relax. He knows from experience how quickly things can go wrong. He continues to watch. Salim walks a block, then ducks into a side street, pausing in the firelit darkness at the rear of a bathhouse. Boilers thunder behind him, their burners tended by a huge, ferociously mustachioed man in a loincloth and fez. Salim squats in the shadows, studying the cardboard tube. It is unmarked and sealed at both ends with red wax. The wax is stamped with Arabic characters to guard against the entry of evil spirits. He cracks one of the seals. A salt smell. He upends the tube. A sin rolls out and plumps into his palm. His immediate urge is to hurl the thing disgustedly away. He resists, forces himself to inspect it. It's about the size of a pigeon's egg, with loose, parchmenty skin over a mass as soft and warm as rice custard. A cord like a rat's tail leads to a 50-pin, 6.5-millimeter universal ribbon connector for multiple data-poor splines. It is from the West. He knows. His mother warned him about such things. In Islam, there are just a few sins, she told him, each adding its weight to the soul so that at last it must descend into hell. Western sins, though more evil, are lighter, she said, which is why Westerners can have so many of them. Salim often sees the Western tourists walking about with them on open display, barnacling their spines and cancering the back of their necks. It sits in his palm, emanating an intimate heat, 
he wants to tramp it into the dust with the heel of his foot. Instead, he carefully returns it to its container and moves on. Michael Jackson's lenses shiver and frisk. The boy's image blinks through the marketplace, strobing between awnings and ornate balconies. Where's he going? In Michael Jackson's headspace, projections run, proliferating. Decision trees branch and rebranch. It's dizzying. So many variables. Michael Jackson is confounded. It had never occurred to him the boy would not try them on himself. As the boy continues along, a new worrying possibility begins to coalesce. Anxiously, Michael Jackson watches its statistical likelihood mount. Inside his hole, a nervous actuator taps out a rhythm a music historian might have recognized as the baseline of his hit single, Blood on the Dance Floor. He starts to think he may have to act. Not yet, but soon. In preparation, he accesses the Tangier white pages and scans for a number. The Souk. Salim hurrying past beggars and vendors, gasohol generators clattering, intricate wickerwork windows, iron doors with medieval locks and hinges. He dodges a sick mule lying in the dust, its beautiful eyes reflecting the video flare of old Wii games and VDU mosaics. He passes a goat herd whose animals are afflicted with an alien disease that has caused their horns to sprout leaves and soft goaty flowers. He rounds a sun-faded red canvas stall selling sandalwood-covered books of God's Word alongside clapped-out laptops and second-hand thinking caps, corroded electrodes swinging among plastic rosaries. He pushes on, past tourist, western, and alien, extraterrestrial and extraterritorial. For Salim, there is little distinction. A brace of blue ghost robots from Camellio Pardis, a pot of Germans in identical pink skin gloves, as turgid and glistening as bratwurst, a bodiless creature from the boot void, its intelligence coded into the infinite busyness of the Medina, thoughts written into the transaction of the turtle soup vendors and the cries of girls peddling disposable phones with call-to-prayer ringtones. At last, Salim arrives at a particular stall. Its sign, in Arabic and English and other scripts, advertises various types of sin, or mods, as the Westerners call them. They hang on racks held in place with yellow plastic clothes pegs. They are dollopy podges of protein-coated programmable RNA wrapped in a swaddle of data fat and Raleigh polymers. They are machines to make you change your mind. There are many types offered here, mood mods and sex mods and drug mods, IQ mods and EQ mods and TLC mods, a wide assortment of god mods, traditionalist varieties to enhance understandings of the teaching of Muhammad, may Allah bless him and grant him peace, and more adventurous brands to devote you to, say, the beliefs of 19th century Fourierites who predicted the end of days would come when the seas turned to lemonade. There are subtle mods to give you the feeling of being seven years old in the first bright morning of your summer holidays. There are brash loud mods to light your spine fuse and set fireworks fizz-banging across the synaptic divides, gray matter bottle rockets air-bursting in the night of your brain pan. Salim understands little of this, of course. To him, trained by his mother and with the literalism of a child, they are all sins, all wicked ranging from venal to deadly. He spots the vendor, Tahar, 
a short, thin, precise man who does people the kindness of not pretending to be kind. Salim has had some dealings with him, making deliveries for Uncle Baba. The association worries him, but he hasn't a choice. Currently, Tahar is haggling with a Bedouin woman. Her dowry coin headdress tinkles as she argues the price of a navigational mod. Salim waits in the shadows. He is so hungry, he no longer feels hungry. Tahar continues to haggle, the transaction running its slow course. Ritualized gestures, shakes of the head, theatrical cries of dismay. Protocols of negotiation as formalized as a ceremonial dance, adhered to until finally both parties are satisfied. The Bedouin woman pays, a flash of debit card in her hennaed hands, then takes the mod and leaves. At which Tahar turns and looks straight at Selim. Come out, boy. It makes me nervous to have you skulking there. Surprised, he thought he was well hidden. Selim steps forward, unable to take his eyes from a platter of honeyed cakes by Tahar's eftpas machine and old-fashioned phone. Tahar sighs. Take one. You'll only steal it otherwise. Selim immediately shoves an entire cake the size of his fist into his mouth. His head fills with the flavor of phyllo and rose-watered and honeyed walnuts. Now, what do you want? Selim's mouth is too full to speak. Silently, he hands Tahar the sin. The man picks it up by its cord. This is... strange. He sockets an old jeweler's loop into his eye. Good workmanship, but a clean skin. I wonder why... He turns it over, inspecting its underside. By its look, I think it may be an addiction, he frowns. I do not care for them myself, though there is a market. Some people find them useful. He regards Selim through the loop. Addictions and obsessions have a way of simplifying things. Selim gulps hugely, clearing his mouth. Fifty dinar, mister. Tahar smiles. If you find out what it does, little one, you might find a buyer on the street. But not here. Forty-five. Forty. Tahar shakes his head. Selim sees a fat sin under the man's collar, a mod, though Selim does not know it, to boost the wearer's left anterior middle temporal gyrus, the part of the brain that models hypotheses on others' internal states. I have seen you before, little one, Tahar says. You are one of Uncle Baba's. You thieve for him and sell stolen goods, giving him a portion of the proceeds. He pauses, allowing his mod to do its thing. Not sympathy, but empathy, cold and razor-sharp. Now he wants you to do a different kind of work. He says you do not have to do it if you do not want to, that you can leave him whenever you like. Sadly, however, if you do not pay him a small fee, he cannot protect you. He hates to think what might happen to you. Salim does not answer. He wishes Tahar would offer him another cake. You are a commodity without an owner, little one. A dangerous thing to be in Tangier. One way or another, the situation cannot last long. Your only hope is that whoever ends up your owner is one who takes care of his possessions. Thirty dinar, Salim says. Please, mister. He realizes he's crying. And suddenly Tahar wavers. Salim doesn't need an empathy mod to see it. He knows Tahar is going to give him the money. 
Then, on the table in the stall, the telephone rings. Tahar picks up the heavy handset, goes to speak, is interrupted. Salim hears a voice on the other end, strange, soft, and faltering. It speaks for a minute, and Tahar flushes, then nods once silent, then dial tone. Slowly, Tahar hangs up. He does not look at Salim. Go, little one. Run away. But, mister... Firmly, Tahar returns the mod. I cannot buy an unmarked unit. When he looks at Salim, his expression is complicated, baffled, sad, amused, appalled. Take it, he says. Go. He turns away, pretending not to notice when Salim steals another cake before running off. Watching the boy running through the streets, Michael Jackson aches with feelings he cannot name. He wonders if his new body has brought with it a new set of emotions. The boy is so alone, so lost, made to live as an adult before he ever had a chance to be a child. Michael Jackson remembers his own childhood, forced to work from the age of seven, no friends, no school, a cruel and neglectful father. In retrospect, then, his final transformation should have come no surprise. After all, he'd never been entirely of this world. He'd always sought escape through his art, through transformations abstract and real. All the surgery, all the cosmetic procedures, had been a legitimized form of self-harm. Scalpels in the place of razor blades, cautery probes in place of lit cigarettes, physical pain to help relieve the deeper pain. Over the years, how many? Too many. He'd stopped counting birthdays after his hundredth. He'd become even more streamlined, even less human. He'd chiseled away at his body, pruning the superfluities, reducing himself by increments, paling into the background. And with time, the lifts and peels were succeeded by more experimental procedures, alterations and refinements, gerontological treatments to keep him a boy-man, undecayed through the decades. Then came procedures more experimental still. Others had done something similar, of course. Most who could afford it were altering themselves in one way or another these days. The transhumanists, the posthumanists. But he'd always been the first. Michael Jackson had been posthuman before there was a word for it. And now? Now he's post-posthuman. Original body little more than a memory. Limbs replaced with ailerons and other control surfaces. Face flowered into a pallid little radio telescope head garden. Grubbed to a butterfly, that's what it feels like. Metamorphosis. Painful. Emancipating. Beautiful. A delicious stretching of long, cramped wings. But as he continues to track the boy below... He knows he is still not entirely free. The paradox is not lost on him. For true liberty, one always needs the ties of love. He wonders if he might work the sentiment up into a song. Disconsolate. Salim slopes and ducks through the souk, the tight alleys of the Medina opening into the boulevard Sidi Mohammed ben Abdallah, the old city giving way to the hotel district. Art Deco palaces, the Idler's Terrace, the El Minza with its dark lush courtyards, the Café Hafa zizzing with cocaine and Tangier jazz. 
Selim, a bit of local color here, an authentic ragamuffin on display for the edification of the tourist. He runs along the Rue d'Ard de Bog, across the square of the Tangierville station, and from there down an incline through a hole in a chain-link fence to his home under a rail bridge. A freight train ka-chunk ka-chunks overhead. Soot rains down. Selim pushes through the brocaded fabric into the little house he has made, a teepee assembled from his mother's old clothing, scavenged bits of lumber supporting her kaftans and jalabas, her foulard scarfs and embroidered pantaloons, shirts and wide ornate belts, the eye grills of her burkas forming slit windows. It is a fantastic object, naive art, an unintentional masterpiece, and indeed, when Michael Jackson's scouts first sent images of it to him a few weeks ago, he began to suspect Selim might be the boy for him. Inside, wrapped in the mother smell, Selim flicks a stolen keychain LED to life. Its light glints from her jewelry, cheap amulets, charms, a comsa pendant pinned to the fabric, its swinging eye warding off evil. The sin's cord hangs slackly in his fingers. He considers what Tahar said, that Selim might sell it on the street if he could discover what was in it. To hesitate would be to give the fear time to take hold. Quickly, he tugs down his collar and touches the connector to the back of his neck, as he's seen the Westerners do. The pins wake at once, ultra-fine, moist with local anesthetic, reaching out to slip into his pores, deeper under his skin, then deeper still. Suddenly, he is sliding sideways into sleep. There's just time to lay his head down. And he is dreaming about his mother. It is the dream he always has, that last night in their rooms. And it is cold, so she tucks him into the blankets, and she, hacking, wheezing, the pneumonia in both lungs by then, wraps herself in a discarded swatch of lighter-than-air bubble wrap, Helium blisters keeping her an inch or so above the rammed earth floor as she nods off, coughing, shivering, fading. And then, as it always does, the dream moves forward hours later when he wakes to the realization of silence. No more coughing. No more wheezing. And for a little while, he enjoys the quiet. Then he realizes what it means. He rises to find her, her corpse bobbing in the air by the closed door, like a pet wanting to be let out. This is the point at which the dream normally ends, leaving Selim awake and weeping. But now it does not end. The dream Selim is surprised to find himself opening the door for her, and his mother's smile is grateful, the smile he remembers, farewelling and forgiving her sinning boy as she begins her journey towards paradise. Janah, the home of peace, where the righteous recline on green cushions in gardens with fountains and streams of clear running water, where the north wind sprays scent upon them and enhances their beauty. And even in his sleep, even in the deepest part of his dreams, he can feel the mod, its soft incursions, its butterfly touches at the edges of his thoughts, a dust of scales in the mind's eye. He wakes. Mid-morning sunlight streams through the eye-grill windows. He rises and pushes himself out into the world, strong and unafraid. 
He glances back at his tent, considering for the first time that he might sell a few of his mother's effects, raise a bit of money that way. Somehow he's sure she wouldn't mind. He stretches and looks about. The Tangier-Marrakesh bullet train is in the station. So beautiful. So powerful. He glances up at the broken sky visible between the girders of the rail bridge. And then he's flat on his back, gasping with a delight too huge to be born. The sky. What has happened to it? It's made of bliss. The mod is an addiction, as Tahar surmised. An addiction to the color blue. Based on the cortical architecture of the male satin bowerbird of Australia, it alters the wearers so that to see blue is to know joy. The effect is such that even the dirty Moroccan sky, postcard blue, yes, but the blue of postcard many years old, faded and smirched and smeared with greasy fingerprints, is utter beauty. Selim breathes it in, feeling unworthy. How had he never seen it before? How could people walk about under it so blithely? He lies there a long while, until clouds gather and his high dissipates. Then he moves on, climbing back up to the street, re-entering the city, eager for more blues. He dives into the turbulent deeps of Tangier, a warm wash of colors, all the shades of terracotta and opium and dust making the blue all the more precious when he finds it. He's a treasure hunter, searching out gems, little bits of delight, the blue de Fez tiles and the mosaics on the walls of the richer houses, the purple-blue threads in the hanging carpets of the weaver's district, the clothes and hides and exoskeletons of various tourists, the pots and the market stalls, often just tourist trash, but the blues, the cobalts, the ultramarines. And then, at the dye cellars, the mounds of colors, just pure color. Indigo, hardcore, straight from the source. Crying out with the pleasure of it, he sits, plonk, just like that, in the middle of the street. He has overcome all his troubles forgotten. Some passers-by look at him, others look away. The sight of a young person drunk on gasohol is not uncommon in Morocco. The high fades once more. He needs a new blue, always a new blue, pulling him on. He's tuned to it following its vibrations to the Dar el-Maksim Museum. He slips by the guards to drink in the blue frescoed ceilings, the plaster works, the silks, the enameled metal pots, the mosaic of Venus on a sea voyage. And it is the glass waves under her boat that ravish him, not the Venus at all. Then he's out again, back on the street, perhaps tossed out, perhaps of his own accord. He neither knows nor cares. His need is stronger, helping him find the lucent gray-blue of a stray cat's eyes than the iridescent turquoise of alien weeds brought as spores on visiting ships. By midday, he discovers he can smell blue, its odorless scent pulling him through and through the city. His desire is a muscular thing, pressing against his organs. His breathing is hard, cold and hot at once. He pushes on, never noticing another older boy who spots him and begins to keep pace. And above, lenses flourish and slick. Michael Jackson's avionics squirm. Should he do something? Not yet. Not yet. 
He waits, his verniers fluting the tune of his early single, Shooby-dooby-doo-da-day. Salim moves on, finding a blue where others might not, a hint at the base of the smoke rising from a charcoal cooking fire, a suggestion in the sheen of a carcass in a butcher's stall, a layer of paint on a house, hidden by its current color, but still there, still muffedly humming. But Salim is never satisfied. He stumbles down the boulevard Mohammed Six, Michael Jackson watching as the older boy unfolds a cellophane cell phone and makes a call. Suddenly, Salim stops. His breath quietens. Over the clamor of the city, he hears something. A crash of waves. The cry of a gull. His head lifts. Of course. He runs, leaps, over a low wall, past the Café Celine Dion, around the back, losing a sandal as he scrambles under a fence, through the backyard of an old colonial house, a dog barking, chasing him onwards, across a midden, cutting his heel, blood flows, doesn't matter, then out the front, onto the beach, the sea, the surf, waves of joy. Weeping, he falls to his knees. He begins shuffling forward through the sand like a penitent. A shout behind him. He turns, if only to share the joy. It is Uncle Baba with two of his boys. Salim smiles. The man looks silly with his British-style pinstripes and his polished brogues on the beach. Uncle Baba says something Salim cannot hear, something about money. Salim shakes his head and turns back to the sea. Who needs money when there is this to be had? He stands and walks on. He will enter it, drown in the blue. A hand whirls him around. It's Baba, who raises a fist and freezes, looking behind Salim in horror. Baba runs, his boys behind him. Glancing back, Salim is annoyed to see his view of the sea has been blocked by a spaceship. He looks at it disinterestedly. It's covered with a fur of innumerable tiny lifting surfaces, a fractal wing, the equivalent of a two-kilometer wingspan fuzzing the vessel's lines, the merest breezes pushing it this way and that, keeping it half aloft, touching but lightly on the earth. Graceful landing gear drum manicured fingernails on the sand. A door opens, and a voice calls, soft and faltering. Blue spills from the opening, bluer even than the sea. It pulls him forward. The ship sighs with pleasure as Salim enters it. He looks around for whoever it was that called him. There is no one. The voice Salim heard was the spaceship's. Its name, as he will learn in coming days, is Michael. The door closes, but Salim isn't worried. It is warm, and there is food and drink and many splendors, and it is all lit blue. Such a blue. The ship speaks again to Salim, soft English words that he does not understand, but the tones are soothing as the vessel rises, a little uncertain at first, wobbling up into the stratosphere, gaining confidence as it reaches escape velocity, the sky unfurling, a rolling glory of stars, 
the ship accelerating now, its dreaming engines driving it even faster, the wavelengths of the stars ahead dobblering, shifting bluer and bluer. And together Michael Jackson and his new friend laugh and dance as they shake off the sad old dirt of the world for the delights of the heavens, moonwalking without end into the blue forevers of Neverland. End. I wonder how much it would cost to be uploaded into a satellite like that. You'd probably need as much money as MJ had before he died. <sighs> anyway, it's time for the interview with Gail Z. Martin. I won't say too much right now, as we covered it pretty well in the interview, so here goes. Welcome, everybody. This is your host, Nicholas Seaton-Clark, and I'm very pleased to be interviewing Gail Z. Martin today. Gail is the author of a number of very interesting books, including The Chronicles of the Necromancer, uh, The Fallen King Cycle, and The Ascendant Kingdoms Saga. Uh, welcome, Gail. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. What we're going to be talking about today is your new book, uh, Deadly Curiosities. It's described as an urban fantasy being released in summer of 2014. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, it, it's really a lot of fun because it's quite a departure for me from the epic fantasy that I've done before. And this is um, Deadly Curiosities is set in modern day Charleston, South Carolina. And it focuses on an antiquing curio shop that exists to get dangerous magical items off the market and out of the wrong hands. So it's uh, it's really a lot of fun, and you'll just never believe how dangerous Charleston is, full of uh, supernatural threats. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. I'm very lucky to have gotten excerpt from you, um, which we'll be hearing shortly after the interview. Can you tell us where the inspiration for this came from? Because as you said, it's quite a departure from the books that we've come to know and love. Uh, well, I was in Charleston for a speaking engagement a couple of years ago, and just walking around, taking some of the tours, doing the carriage rides. It's such a beautiful city. It's one of the top tourist attractions in the United States. And um, it's just so gorgeous. And I thought, you know, there are a lot of books that are set in New Orleans. And New Orleans is a gorgeous city, too. But I couldn't think of any that had been set for urban fantasy in Charleston. And it's got a lot of New Orleans charm in terms of the, the gorgeous old buildings. But it hasn't been used quite as much so it isn't quite as familiar and yet when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at bluenile.com you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's such a history to plumb in there in the city. There are so many unexplored uh, tendrils for stories that you can take. And uh, then I came back down again, did some more investigating and said, you know, I've really got to come up with a story idea for a novel set in this city. And uh, fortunately, Solaris agreed that that was a good idea. And um, actually, there was an interim step there. Solaris asked me to do a story for them for uh, their Magic the um, Esoteric and Arcane anthology. And I, I did one set in Charleston with the characters that'll be in Deadly Curiosities. And Solaris liked it well enough. They came back and said, do you, do you think you could do a novel for us? <laughs> That's, that must be a great feeling to have a, a short story, have so much potential that you can just expand it into an entire novel. Um, exciting and scary because, you know, of course you have a much shorter page count on the short story. But, uh, you know, I, I just had the sense that there was so many, there were so many more places we could go with, Cassidy, who's the main character, and, and Tegan Soren, who are the uh, very strong secondary characters. And so, uh, the you know, the novel is done. I'll be working on the second book in the series this summer. And I've also brought out a number of short stories set in the Deadly Curiosities universe, either for anthologies or directly to Kindle Kobo and Nook. So there are some nice uh, between and before the book stories out there as well as a free novella that's on Wattpad right now. Um, any other of your, uh, your short stories that you wish you could expand into a novel or expand upon, should I say? Well, actually, a uh, short story that I did for Clockwork Universe, um, Steampunk versus Aliens, which is a uh, Kickstarter uh, anthology that uh, funded very, very well, and it'll be coming out at the end of this summer, features um, some side characters from the steampunk novel that uh, my husband and I will be doing for Solaris next year, uh, Iron and Blood. So it's been a lot of fun. The, the short stories were originally something I was really you know, terrified of doing because when you are used to having a contract that says no fewer than 175,000 words, you know, you have, a, you have a very big part to play in. And then when you get a contract that says, Eight to 10,000, you're going, oh, my gosh, that's no space at all. How do you cram a story into that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, you haven't given me any space here. <laughs> and uh, I, I will admit I usually do commit on the upper side of that, uh, around the, the 10 or sometimes 12 mark, um, which still seems incredibly short. But uh, it has really been a lot of fun writing additional stories, um, just little vignettes, little quick recap stories, quick. 20 to 30 to 40 pages um, that take you a little further into the world. And since it'll be, you know, another whole year until the second Deadly Curiosities novel comes out, I'm hoping folks will find the short stories and uh, 
you know, get, get a few more tastes of the world and see a little more detail about the characters. So what is your, your everyday writing habits? Do you, do you sit down at a desk and work from nine to five or do you write when you feel like it or? Well, I'm on too many deadlines to write when I feel like it. So I normally take a look at when the books are due and then add in the monthly short story that I write and anything else that might be coming due for an anthology, figure out the total page count for the month, divide that by the number of days in the month, and now I know what I've got to hit every day, give or take. Okay. Um, <laughs> and my, um, my creative brain doesn't really kick on until after lunch. Uh, I know this about myself. It was even that way when I worked in corporate long ago. Mornings are good for me to go work out. Um, they're good for me to get through some email and some social media and return some phone calls and do some errands. But the creative brain doesn't really kick in until around one o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So, um, usually from about one in the afternoon until eight or eight thirty, sometimes longer if there have been interruptions there, um, that's when I get the actual writing done. And you just sit down and churn it out. Um, sometimes there's some sitting at the screen cursing, you know, that goes on. <laughs> um, generally when, <laughs> when ideas don't flow as fast as they should. And then there's, you know, a lot of jumping out to the web to fact check or double check a date or verify something, especially writing in the real world like I am with Deadly Curiosities. Um, if I mention something, I want to make sure that I've got the dates right for it. Um, because I, while I take some liberties with the real world and the history in Deadly Curiosities, I need to be on track more times than I take liberties. Uh, where with the epic fantasy, since the world was entirely of my own creation, I could make the whole thing up and there was nobody to point a finger and say, oh, no, 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 that happened in 1865, not 1862, or whatever. Do you just do you have like a, a store of ideas when you're shopping or or at the bank or doing mundane things? Do do I, ideas for stories and characters pop into your head, or is this? Do you have a different process? Well, you know, with Deadly, it's really interesting because um, it's very object based. So Cassidy Kincaid is the uh, most recent in her family to be the proprietor of Trifles and Folly. It's that uh, antique and curio shop in Charleston that's been around for 350 years, which for those of us in the States, that's practically the whole time that it's been colonized. <laughs> so it goes back pretty far for us. Um, I know you have bus stops older than that, but bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and so usually the stories center on some kind of object that crosses Cassidy's path. She's a psychometric. She can read strong emotional or supernatural impressions on objects. There's some kind of object that starts the story or becomes key to the story because that's the focus of the haunting in some way. There, somehow the supernatural bad guys have some tie to the, the object, the antique object. Mm -hmm. And um, so with that... I can walk through a museum and get ideas for more more books than I'll be alive to write, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I 
was just at the um, Metropolitan Museum in uh, New York City, and I'm taking notes on my phone, and the docents are kind of giving me this side eye, like, what are you going to do? But, you know, so anytime I find cool objects like that, there are all kinds of story ideas. The objects that you'll see in a lot of the, um, in Deadly Curiosities, and then also in a number of the um, short stories to date, uh, often have come out of um, some pieces that I've had personal experience with. Um, my father was quite a collector and quite a hoarder. And uh, over the last couple of years, first when he went into the nursing home and then when he passed away, it fell to uh, my husband and I to clean out the house, get rid of everything, and then figure out what to do with the collectible objects that you know were were actually valuable. And so many of the objects that get mentioned in the book and in the short stories, I've, I've owned, I've handled them, I've had to dispose of them. They weren't haunted, but they could have been. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of that personal experience, particularly in the first book, um, that makes it a, a very personal book on some, you know, kind of, kind of strange levels. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for uh, young writers or people who want to get into writing who have lots and lots of ideas but um, haven't yet quite managed to get them down on paper? I I think start writing and don't stop. Um, You know, it really is like any other exercise. You get better at it the more you do it. And find a couple of friends that you can trust who will not only just, you know... You want them to be positive, but you don't want them to say, oh, I love it, I love it, I love it, if it's really crap. (laughs) So you need somebody who can, who's familiar with whatever type of book you're reading. They read a lot of other books like that, and they are kind enough to not be intentionally hurtful, but honest enough to say, you know, I really liked the story until we got about halfway through, and then it got really boring. Or, Or your character just didn't, grab my attention. You need that kind of feedback as an author so that you know what to fix. And then the next time it'll be better. So just start writing and and don't stop. All right. Great. Well, Gail, thank you so much for taking time out to speak with us today. I hope our listeners enjoy the extract that is coming up uh, after the interview. And um, whereabouts can we get hold of your new book? Sure. Uh, well, uh, Deadly Curiosities should be in bookstores everywhere. Um, in fact, this summer I will be over in the UK, in London and Cardiff and Edinburgh, doing signings uh, at Waterstones and at Forbidden Planet. Um, you can find me here in the States, Barnes Noble, Amazon, Books Million, uh, bookstores really anywhere and online. And the short stories that I mentioned you can find on Kindle, Kobo, and Nook. And uh, there is a free novella set in the world on Wattpad. Yes, that's W-A-T-T-P-A-D. Yep. And, of course, folks, uh, I'd love you to join me on Twitter at Gail Z. Martin. Um, Also on Facebook is The Winter Kingdoms. And my website is DeadlyCuriosities.com. Well, Gail, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wish you a, a very pleasant day further. You have half your day left. Mine is coming to an end. Uh, The transatlantic chat was very, very nice. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. Bye now. And now for the excerpt itself, read for you by 
Yours truly. Chapter 7 You know each other? Rebecca said, confused. She looked from me to Teague and back again as Antony walked over and gave me a hug. I chuckled, realising I'd been set up. Uh, Teague and I work together at the shop, and Antony's a dear friend, I said. We're your backup, Teague explained, pressing a glass of wine into my hand. I told Antony about the mail you got and about you coming here by yourself. And I asked what he thought about getting away for a couple of evenings. Antony finished the sentence. He grinned broadly, flashing me a smile that no doubt was part of his stellar ability to woo juries and broker successful contract negotiations. Usually I saw Antony in a suit, looking like he'd just stepped off the cover of a men's fashion magazine. Teague, with his skater boy hair and jeans, was rolling stone to Antony's GQ. Tonight, Antony had traded in a suit and tie for a collared polo shirt and crisp khakis over boat shoes, a popular upscale Charleston look. Other than changing into a fresh T-shirt from the one he'd worn all day at the shop, Teague looked the same as he had a couple of hours earlier. They made a cute couple. Honestly, Cassidy, I didn't think you should tackle this by yourself, Teague said. Rebecca looked abashed. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't mean to cause a problem. I patted her arm. You haven't. We sold you the item, so we've got a responsibility to figure out what's going on. She put on her game face and managed to smile. What can I do to help? You've already given me the tour and got me thinking, I said. I gave her my best gung-ho smile. We'll take it from here. Why don't you go up to your room if you feel safe there and stay put for the night? Rebecca looked relieved. Now that I'd had time to study her features, I could see that there were dark circles under her eyes. If living in a newly haunted house wasn't wearing her down, then worrying about the ghost's impact on her livelihood certainly couldn't help, especially if the haunts were becoming more active and dangerous. Teague and Antony and I hung out in the dining room enjoying our wine and the plate of appetizers, while Rebecca cleaned up the kitchen and made a tray to carry up to her room. At my request, she also put on a fresh pot of coffee, since it was likely to be a long night, and set out cups. We promised to rinse out our wine glasses and put the hors d'oeuvres plate back in the kitchen, and bade Rebecca good night. I can't believe you two came to help me out, I said when Rebecca was gone. Teague put his hands on his hips and cocked his head, giving me his best stern schoolteacher look. Really? After what's been going on, you think I'm going to let you come to a whole house full of spookies by yourself? If the haints don't scare Rebecca, seeing you go down into a dead faint with one of your visions is sure to. I had to smile. Haints was a local term for ghost, and it even had its own paint colour, haint blue, named after the vivid shades some people painted their doors to keep away nasty spirits. It wasn't a word in Teague's usual vocabulary, and I knew he said it to lighten the mood. I even brought an extra kit, just in case, Teague said, and nodded towards the leather messenger bag he had placed next to the door. I knew it would contain everything that was in my own pack, upstairs in my room. Our kit for investigating questionable objects included several common but supernaturally powerful items. Salt for protection, chalk, sometimes needed to mark an area to protect or avoid, charcoal, a small bundle of sage, and an abalone shell to cleanse an area after our working. We usually carried several other useful items in our kit, including a wind-up flashlight supernatural creatures tend to wreak havoc on batteries, and a pouch with dried fennel, hyssop, marigold and rue, also useful for banishing negative energy. 
Just for good measure, we usually also threw in a couple of pieces of turquoise, agate and onyx. I even made sure Antony and I had our lucky agate stones with us, Teague said with a grin, and held up a smooth, polished, small agate disc which he had hidden in his pocket. We're ready. What can we do to help, Cassidy? Practical as always, Antony was the perfect foil to Teague's unbridled enthusiasm. Short of breaking and entering, I'm with you. I chuckled, knowing that with Antony's family and legal connections he could probably get away with B&E in this town, but I wasn't going to ask that of him. Well, I said, we're already inside, so no breaking necessary. I thought I'd start by trying to read the objects room by room. After that, I figured on a stakeout to see some of this ghostly activity. Something changed these pieces. If we can figure out what made the difference, we should be able to make it stop. Antony frowned. Can't we just remove the objects? I shook my head. Now that it's started, I don't think just taking the pieces away is going to make it stop. Briefly, I filled them in on what Rebecca had told me earlier in the day, and the sightings of the man with a broad-brimmed hat. Teague glanced out of the front windows, but no one was in sight. Let's go, Teague said, finishing his wine and setting the glass aside. Touching the wood of the table and sideboard gave me a fleeting image of dinners and happy conversation. I reached out to touch the tea set, but only got a vague, pleasant aura and the distant scent of Earl Grey. It's got some resonance, but the energy is positive, I said. I bent down and opened the doors below the sideboard. Would you please pull out that tablecloth? Antony carefully removed the folded tablecloth and set the bundle on the mahogany dining table. I recognise that, Teague said. I still don't get any vibes of magic woven or embroidered into the piece. I moved to touch the tablecloth, but Antony pulled out a chair for me. Why don't you sit down to handle the objects, Cassidy? he said in his best lawyer advisory tone. First, I let my hand rest on the wood of the table itself. As with the sideboard, the fleeting images were of happy times, making me feel safe and reassured. I took a deep breath and laid my right hand on the tablecloth, then closed my eyes and waited for the show to start. It didn't take long. There were images of family gatherings, mostly happy, crammed together like a super-fast slideshow. I saw an elderly man sitting at the head of a table set for Thanksgiving dinner. Relatives of all ages were busily talking and laughing. At the other end of the table sat a tall, handsome woman with high cheekbones and intelligent, dark eyes. She was presiding over the meal with quiet pride. Judging from the clothing, the year was around 1940. The images shifted so fast I grabbed at the table to steady myself. I saw the older man straighten suddenly, saw him clutch his chest in pain, trying to call out. Family members rushed from their places to help him out of his chair, easing him to the floor as the tall woman ran to his side and held his hand. Another spasm of pain racked the man's body and he wheezed and then fell still. Dinner sat forgotten and the celebration turned to mourning. I sensed the passage of time in the vision as the images blurred like someone had hit fast forward. The table with its holiday covering now hosted a funeral dinner for the mourners. The next image was the strongest. The dining room was dark, the mourners had gone and the tall woman sat in her seat at the table looking down at the empty seat at the end. I could feel her heart breaking. And I knew what she was going to do next. Oh, I whispered, don't. But the actions had been taken long before I was born and nothing could change them now. I watched in horror as the woman left the room and returned with a stout length of rope. She slipped off her shoes and then climbed onto the table, looping one end of the rope over the heavy chandelier.
She'd already fashioned a noose. Eyes fixed on the empty seat at the head of the table, she took a deep breath, closed her eyes, and stepped into oblivion. I came back to myself, lying on the floor, the tablecloth clutched in my hands, gasping for breath. Teague was kneeling next to me, and Antony was staring at both Teague and I as if we'd lost our minds. This is what the two of you do for a living? he asked, wide-eyed. Teague had the good grace to give a nervous laugh. <laughs> Not always, but yeah, sometimes. He helped me sit up. It took me a moment before I could speak. I think Mrs. Butler left out some of the story. Teague and Antony helped me up and I took a deep breath. The linens have a powerful psychic imprint, I said, and recounted what I'd seen. I think the other woman is old Mrs. Harrison, the wife of the man who built this house, I ended. But we still don't know what made the ghosts show up now. Teague sprinkled a few grains of salt onto the tablecloth. The salt wouldn't damage the fabric, but it would put a damper on the negative energy. That should help us narrow down which piece or pieces were the real troublemakers. Antony watched as Teague sprinkled the salt. Why don't you do whatever you're doing before Cassidy touches something? It would certainly spare her a lot of distress. The problem is, if we dampen the energy, we don't really know what we're dealing with, Teague explained. The only time we put out the protective materials in advance is if the item has been known to actually harm someone. Nothing else in the dining room had any hint of supernatural power, so we headed to the entranceway. I touched paintings, doilies, the antique rug and a set of candlesticks and got nothing. But when my fingers skimmed the funeral vase, images lit up in my mind. I heard women weeping and men clearing their throats in grief. I saw the vase and two small coffins in a sparse parlour. The weight of the onlooker's sorrow fell heavy on my heart and I began to sob. Teague gently reached over and separated my hand from the vase and the vision winked out. I dragged my sleeve across my eyes. Antony handed me a tissue. I saw the funerals, I said when I could speak again with a nod to Teague. It's a strong vision, but not powerful enough to energise the whole place. Teague dropped a bit of charcoal into the vase. The parlour held no sparklies or spookies at all. Even the vintage couch was completely mundane. It was a relief after the last two rooms and gave me a little break to catch my breath. I suspected that the upstairs would be exciting, not in a good way. Since I'd already checked out the items in my room, we went to Teague and Antony's room. I received some images from touching the bed frame and blushed. The bed set resonated with sensual satisfaction, and I guessed it had witnessed some memorable reunions in its time. Embarrassing, yes. Dangerous, no. Teague must have guessed as much from the way my face reddened, because he chuckled but didn't ask any questions. I touched the other objects in the room and got sparks from a few of them, brief fragmentary images, most of which were positive. Nothing in this room held bad mojo. I knew we weren't going to be as lucky with the next room. Let's do the sad room first, I said. I was putting off the mirror room. With more confidence than I felt, I swung the door open. This room had an impressive and expensive suite of furniture. Once again I started with a bed, but this time... There were no strong emotions at all. The quilt gave snapshots of ordinary lives, nothing traumatic or tragic. None of the rest of the bedroom furniture gave up any secrets to my touch, so I turned my attention to the decorations. The still-life paintings had no resonance at all, nor did the silver bowl on the mantel or the elegant hurricane lamp. But the silver picture frames drew me, 
filling me with a sadness beyond words even before I touched them. A handsome young man and pretty young woman looked back at me from the photographs. I guessed that they were in their late teens or early twenties. They looked happy and full of life, dressed in their best go-to-a-meeting finery. I'm going to sit down, I announced. I think this is going to be intense. I settled into one of the chairs by the fireplace, and Teague brought the frames to me. Mustering my courage, I let him place the frames on my open palms. Black despair washed over me, unreasoning and limitless. The world around me dimmed, and nothing intruded on the grief. Voices called to me, but I could barely hear them. If I was still breathing and my heart still beat, it happened without my knowing it. I felt as dead as my babies, as cold as their pale skin, lifeless as their still bodies. My babies? A rational corner of my mind argued, but I was too far gone to notice. If the grief of the old woman's ghost in the dining room had driven her to suicide, this overwhelming sorrow led to madness. Dimly, I heard a woman screaming as the picture frame tumbled from my hands. Cassidy! Cassidy! Snap out of it! Teague's voice sounded from a long way away. I recognised the voice, but in my grief I lacked the power to follow it. I was being swept away on a dark, cold tide that was sure to draw me under. Icy water hit my face and I came up spluttering. "'What the hell was that?' I asked, coming back to myself in a rush. "'Sorry,' Antony said, giving me his most endearing smile. "'You were screaming. It seemed like the fastest way to bring you back.' I shook my hair like a wet dog and looked down at my shirt, which was now covered with water spots. Antony handed me a towel and I dried off, trying to regain a shred of my dignity. "'Well, I was right. It was intense,' I said ruefully. "'I think I found something,' Antony said. He was kneeling beside the picture frame where it had fallen. The shock had broken the glass and knocked the backing off the frames. I winced, sorry that I'd damaged the antique. But Antony's attention was on something behind the pictures, and I watched as he gingerly teased out two completely different photographs underneath the frame's backing. That might explain it, Teague said, coming round to stand behind Antony and looking down at the new photos. Let me see, I said, turning in my chair. Antony ducked, remaining beyond my reach. No way. I'll hold them up for you, but I'm not handing them over, Antony said. I caught my breath. Those are death pictures, I said softly. I stared at the antique prints. In the years after the Civil War, when photography was still new, family pictures were an expensive luxury. Sometimes the only photo that might be taken was after death. Ghoulish as the thought was to modern sensibilities, Victorians did not find the idea shocking or disturbing, and a whole photographic specialty sprang up to give bereaved families a memento of their lost loved ones. Memento mori, I thought. It means, remember death. The photos that had fallen out were of the same man and woman I'd seen in the frames, perhaps a little older, wearing the same clothing, but with a crucial difference. They were posed in lifelike positions, seated upright in high-backed chairs, eyes open and hands clasped on their laps. A second look revealed an unnatural stiffness in the limbs and that the eyes had been painted onto closed eyelids. They were very definitely dead. I swallowed hard. Was it a mother's grief, I felt? It was clear to me that the deaths of these two young people had caused a third tragedy, the complete breakdown of someone who loved them more than life itself. We don't have to finish this all in one night, Teague said quietly. 
He'd gone to the door to reassure Rebecca that all was well, and a moment later she came back with a glass of sweet iced tea before she returned to her upstairs hideaway. I drank the sweet tea with gusto. In Charleston, sweet tea is brewed strong and loaded with sugar. It was just what I needed. While I drank the tea, Teague set the picture frames image side down on the table and placed a small piece of charcoal on top of them. I felt the bad vibes calm almost immediately. I'll be okay, I said resolutely. I still don't think we found the key. On the way over to the mirror room, I made a mental note to give Teague a well-deserved raise for combat pay, and I resolved to take him and Anthony out for dinner at the nicest restaurant I could afford. I couldn't imagine doing this on my own, and I was immensely grateful for their support. I thought that Anthony might have balked at the idea of ghosts, supernatural phenomena, or my psychometric talent, but falling for Teague meant learning to accept Teague's weaver magic. And since he and Teague had already jumped that hurdle, I guess seeing my abilities in action was no longer much of a shock. So far, I thought he was coping rather well. Anthony opened the door to the last bedroom and flipped on the light. I don't think I'd want to sleep here, Anthony said, glancing around. I can't put my finger on why, but something's not right. Then again, perhaps Anthony's a sensitive, I thought to myself. That would certainly explain a few things. Teague had hinted as much, though I suspected Anthony might still be chalking up his insights to intuition. I started with the furniture again. It radiated moodiness. Anthony walked over to the window and looked out. This room looks down on the garden, he said. The garden that was mysteriously vandalised, I thought. I picked up a vague longing from the seascape painting. The oil painting of the young woman, to my relief, gave no impression at all. That left the pewter lantern and the Chinese foo dog statue plus the mirror. The lantern held a candle inside a small glass globe. It wasn't one of the pieces that came from trifles and folly, and neither was the foo dog statue. The lantern wasn't our problem. This was one of the rooms with a working fireplace. The opening was covered with a metal curtain, and a vintage poker and tong sat in a holder next to the hearth. Two chairs were arranged facing the fireplace, and if it weren't for the damn mirror, I bet the room would have felt charming and cosy. The mirror hung over the mantel. It was the focal point of the room and the piece I had been avoiding. Anywhere else I would have thought it was a handsome piece with its ribbon-like bronze frame. For its age the silver backing on the mirror was in very good condition and I remember thinking how lovely it was when we had it in the shop. Now it seemed sinister. As I stared at the mirror I caught a glimpse of a shadow behind me. I wheeled and saw nothing feeling foolish as Teague and Antony stared at me. Something wrong? Teague asked. I thought I saw something, I murmured, turning my attention back to the mirror. I decided to leave the Chinese Fu dog statue for last. I took another step toward the mirror, fighting my fear. As I stared into it, I felt turmoil, as if beneath the placid silver surface wild seas roiled. Just in case, I took one of Teague's pouches of salt and shoved it into my jeans pocket. When I got within arm's length, I saw that the mirror was grey, not silver, and at this distance I could make out ghostly images sliding across it. I touched the mirror and tumbled into its depths. Someone, something, was in the mirror. I could see the motion out of the corner of my eye, but every time I turned to see, nothing was there. I felt like Alice, gone through the looking glass, adrift in a silvery world, a world where I was not alone. Claws skittered against a hard surface behind me. I wheeled, but the silver room was empty. 
I could hear muffled voices in the distance. Some, some were chanting, others screamed in terror. A shadow slid across the silvery surface of the walls. But like a hall of mirrors, it was impossible to know what was real and what was reflection. I was cold, disoriented, afraid. The shadow man skirted the edge of my vision, and I, I had the sense the spirit was enjoying my fear, feeding from it. I was afraid to move, fearful that I might get lost in this reflective realm, unable to find my way back. And I saw him. The shadow man loomed ahead of me. The image was more solid and opaque than a normal shadow, its form elongated, not quite human. Although I couldn't make out any features, I knew it was watching me making up its mind. Malevolence radiated from the image and my heart thudded. It was the predator. I was the prey. The shadow rushed at me, impossibly long arms outstretched, claw-like fingers grasping. It came at me like the wind. With one hand I grasped the agate necklace and with the other I grabbed a handful of salt from the pocket of my jeans and threw it at the shadow. Just for an instant it wavered, but I knew it would come at me again. Strong hands grabbed me from behind, hauling me backward. My hand lost contact with the mirror. Only then did I realise I was screaming. I came back to myself, caught in Antony's tight embrace, and fresh from the horror of the vision, I fought him, possessed with sheer, primal terror. His strong hands gripped my wrists. Take it easy, he coaxed. You're back now, you're safe. I was shaking and I felt sick to my stomach. Antony eased me into the chair by the fireplace. It was several more moments before I could give even the briefest account of what I'd seen. In the meantime, Teague had already sprinkled a line of salt beneath the mirror and had begun blowing a fine dusting of charcoal powder over the reflective surface, which reduced its powerful energy to a dull, distant roar. "'You were screaming bloody murder,' Teague said, looking utterly unnerved. "'Good thing we're the only guests at the inn, or someone would be calling the cops.' One thing was undeniable— the mirror had not possessed the power to draw me into it at trifles and folly. I saw the shadow man in the mirror, I told them once I caught my breath. It's become a gateway, a portal. It was looking for me and it attacked. I let out a long breath. Thanks for getting me out of there. Do you think the mirror is the key? Teague asked. I thought for a moment and then shook my head. No, it's dangerous, and whatever spirit was inside it is malicious, but I don't think it's the focal point. Just for good measure, I touched my palm to the agate necklace on my chest, and then I turned to look at the foo dog statue. Eliminate all other factors, and the ones which remain must be the truth, Sherlock Holmes had said. I had the feeling that I was staring the truth of Gardenia Landing's haunting in the eyes as I looked at the Chinese sculpture. I put out my hand and let it hover above the shiny blue glaze that covered the stylized little dog. I think I've found the problem, I said. Well, I for one am looking forward to that very much. Have a look at the Farfetched Fables website for links to Gail's website and keep an eye out for that new book, Deadly Curiosities. So now, let's move on to the second story for this week. It's a flash fiction piece by Barbara A. Barnett called Swan Maiden. Barbara is a writer, musician, librarian, Odyssey writing workshop alum, coffee addict, wine lover, bad movie mocker and all-round geek. 
Her short fiction has appeared in many prestigious publications. She lives with her husband in southern New Jersey and has been known to frequently burst into song. You can find her online by clicking on the links you'll find on our Triple F website. The story is narrated by a very talented young lady named Rachel D. Rachel is new to the audio world and excited to step in. She's always enjoyed reading. She was the child who read out loud to her mother, not the other way around. And taking away books was also how she was grounded when she was younger. I'm thinking of doing that to my kids. Currently, she lives in the DFW area with her husband, cat and dog, and is pursuing film and television acting. You can learn more about her at actressracheld.com. So here goes. The Swan Maiden by Barbara A. Barnett. The windowless theater makes it impossible to keep track of the days, but I am certain that years have passed since Theodore's last visit. I fear that he has died while his magic has not, for here I still stand, a swan maiden poised forever on point, forever cursed. I often wonder how our swan lake tableau looks from the seats. A circle of ballerinas in white feathered skirts, one arm raised, the other swept down and back the entire body mimicking the curve of a swan's neck. The other swan maidens are like ghosts lurking in my peripheral vision, hinted at, but never fully seen. My gaze is fixed on the principal dancer at the center of our circle, Roxana in the role of Odette, her hair's tight, perfect bun partially obscured by a sliver of my outstretched arm. Theodore froze her in an arabesque ponche, with her expression radiating an elegant strength I used to envy but I've come to learn that her strength was as affected and fleeting as any dance pose. When Theodore cast the spell, the audience, of course, gave him a standing ovation. It would have been deemed rude not to applaud a man's artistry in his own theater. The parties he threw to celebrate his triumph were maddening. High society flocked around us, ran their hands over us, gushed over the new artistic direction Theodore's work had taken. Yet for every stranger's hand that molested me, I felt nothing. I watched counts and countesses strike lewd poses with Roxana. I heard their laughter, but had no voice of my own with which to object. I never dreamed that I would long for the cold, sticky feel of spilled champagne until some baron admired the way it trickled down my leotard. You will never age, never hunger, never thirst, Theodore once told us. You will be forever young, forever dancing. What could we say? People like us had no voice even before Theodore's spell ensured that we would never speak again. When the alternative was starvation, you accepted the contracts you were offered, no questions asked. And so now our fates are like that of Odette in Swan Lake. We are helpless, waiting for someone to rescue us from our curse. Yet in a way, it is poor, pitiable Odette, or Roxana rather, who has given me enough hope not to go mad. All this time Roxana's expression has been changing the muscles in her face moving in barely perceptible degrees. Theodore's grand parties thinned after time, as did he. His skin grew wrinkled and sallow, and all that remained of his once dark hair were scattered wisps of gray, and he seemed to crumple in on himself, neck and shoulders curved in a mockery of our swan-like poses. During his last visit, he stroked the curve of my raised arm and admonished me for not holding it as high as the other swan-maidens, then, for the only time that I can recall, he admonished himself as well. The perfect spell would have allowed me to correct such a flaw, 
But magic isn't perfect, is it? That was when I noticed the marks on Theodore's arms, the kind of puckered red sores left by a doctor's leeches. You are family, Theodore told us before leaving that day, the only family this forgotten artist has left. As more unmarked days pass, I suspect that must be true. The few who come to the theater now speak to each other of plans to purchase, yet they never do. They say the neighborhood is no longer what it was. They say Theodore's lingering spells are all that keeps the vagrants from piling their filth into the aisles. What I can see of the theater has fallen into disrepair. The velvet curtains are tattered and thick with dust. Fabric that was once the vibrant red of fresh blood is now the tired, mottled brown of a scab. The luster has faded from the proscenium's golden trim. The theater chandelier isn't visible from where I stand, but I would not be surprised to hear it come crashing down. The vagrants are probably safer outside. Roxana's expression has finally finished its slow transformation into a look of madness and despair. Whereas my arm is unchanged, Roxana's skin, once so smooth and pale, has taken on the cast of stone, and that stone is chipping. Unlike her, I will not make the ballet heroine's choice. I will not dive into the lake to drown myself as Odette did, all hope lost. I have begun to move my foot. Every prolonged, infinitesimal motion inspires excruciating pain, pain that demands a scream I cannot release. But before the theater collapses to the ground, I will take my first step in years. <laughs> Ooh, that one sends shivers down my spine. I can't even imagine being frozen like that and yet fully aware. Yeesh. And that brings us to the end of the show. Please remember, everyone, that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. You all know what that means. And if you like what we bring you, do us a solid and pop over to iTunes, write us a review, like us on Facebook, tell other fantasy freaks about the show, or just drive around your neighbourhood with a show playing at max volume on your car stereo and the windows wound all the way down. In the meantime, take it easy. Keep smiling and don't forget, in some universe, ours is the fantasy world. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.